Hello and welcome to the Saint and Sinner podcast. This is a reformed podcast for God's people to find their rest in the finished work of Christ. And my name's Daniel and I'm joined by my co-host Brian and thanks for tuning in uh, to this episode. And uh, on today's episode, we're pretty excited about this one. We're going to be talking about union with Christ. Now, I want to begin with this question. How would you describe yourself as a believer? You know, if, if you were to put it down to one term or one phrase or one word, how, how would you describe yourself as a believer? And I think for most of us, we would use the word Christian. We would say that I am a Christian. That's my identity. That's who I am. Maybe some of you would say I'm a born again believer. I'm a born again Christian. But here's the surprise. And this is something that I, that I only came to realize a few years into my Christian faith. And that is the word Christian only pops up three times in the whole New Testament. <laughs> and so not much at all. And it was a word that would be spat out at you. It was an insult. It's a bit like being called a Puritan in the 17th century, which was a negative term. And so the better question to ask is, well, how did the early Christians understand themselves? If they were to pinpoint their identity, what would they say? As you read the New Testament, it becomes really, really clear that the early Christians understood themselves as the in Christ ones. And so John, that's why John Calvin said that union with Christ is the highest degree of importance. And John Murray said it's the most important reality in salvation. And so the question is, well, what is it? <laughs> if, if this whole idea of union with Christ is so crucial and so important, which is a pretty big claim, what is it? Well, union with Christ is the reality that the believer receives every salvation blessing in the person of Christ himself. In other words, by faith, we have been united to him. And by framing salvation in terms of union, we hold the person and work of Christ together as a whole. And so that means Christ doesn't stand at a distance handing you the goodies of salvation. It is not like Jesus sits in heaven and he looks down at us believers and he stands there and he hands us all of the goodies like Pokemon cards. He's like, okay, here's, let me chuck you justification your way. And here's, some, here's a sprinkling of sanctification, and here's a bit of adoption, and here's glorification. No, <laughs> you can only receive any of those things if you're incorporated into Christ himself. And so the atonement is indivisible from the one who atones. Jesus' work is useless if we're not united to him. It's something that John Calvin says in book three, uh, the first chapter of his institutes. He says, if we are separated from Jesus Christ, then everything that he has done for us and for our salvation is of no benefit to us whatsoever. So I think an important point to make here is how are we united to Christ? Now, many times in life, we could be going through something difficult, suffering, pain, trials of various kinds. And there are some around us who might say to us, I'm with you. I'm standing beside you. I'm in close proximity with you. We are going to get through, through this together. And though that's a very nice thing of them to say, what Jesus does with the church goes deeper than that. It's not just his solidarity with the church. It's not just his proximity to the church. Jesus Christ really and truly unites the church to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural union, a mystical union that takes place. Now, how can this be? 
how can Jesus indwell his people or have the people of indwell himself? How does that take place? I think a very helpful quote comes from a theologian by the name of Richard B. Gaffin Jr. I'm just going to read what he has to write. He says, spiritual union stems from the climactic and intimate relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit. Because of the resurrection, the incarnate Christ, the last Adam, has been so transformed by the Spirit and is now in such complete possession of the Spirit that he has become life-giving Spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45. And as a result, the Lord is the Spirit, and that's from 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now, what does this mean? It means that because of the resurrection and because he has now been glorified in his human state, he is forever God and man at the same time. Well, this God-man is in now such a glorified state that he has complete and total possession of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now his in entirety. There is no reservations. It is a full and complete relationship, so much so that there is a greater union between the two. And now Christ has become a life-giving spirit, and the Lord, Jesus, is the spirit. Now, what we're not saying here is that there is no longer distinctions between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That would be heresy. There are always distinctions. And eternally, in the Godhead, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son, has always and will always be perfectly in union with the other members of the Trinity. That cannot change. But what we're saying here is in the personhood of Jesus as God and man, there is now a renewed and climactic shift where he is totally aligned with the Holy Spirit in a way that when the Spirit comes to indwell his people, he brings Christ as well. And so Jesus indwells his people and is united to his people through the Holy Spirit. And where do we see in the Bible? But the Holy Spirit comes to live within his, in his people. Well, it's all over the New Testament. You have 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Romans 8.9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So the declaration that we are trying to make and will shout from the rooftops is that we have been tied together with Jesus Christ because God's Spirit now lives within us, and with God's Spirit, Christ is there. Yeah, so so maybe one of the questions that some of you might have about that is, well, where's this coming from? You know, I've, I've never heard this before. I remember the first time I heard this at Bible college, and I remember thinking, well, sounds great, but where are you getting this idea from? And I think there, there are a few things to say about that. First thing to say is that there are some background concepts that really help us with union with Christ. And so the first one is, is our doctrine of creation. And so if you think about the Garden of Eden, think about creation. Consider the fellowship that God has with humanity. Notice that it isn't a distant relationship. You have God walking with Adam in the garden. And then you have the language of us being the image bearers of God, which suggests that there's this relatedness between humanity and God. There's something that we share. Now, obviously, this isn't union with Christ, uh, but union with Christ isn't surprising if that's your anthropology. If you begin there in creation, you're not surprised when you open up the New Testament and you have all of this in Christ language. The other background concept would be the language that you find in the Old Testament between God 
and humanity. And so God will say, it's the covenant strap line of the Bible. I will be their God and they will be my people. And you'll see God turning up and saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God isn't just God. He's God, the God of us. And so the identity is defined by the relationship with the other person. And notice that God is defining himself in relationship with a mortal. And so again, we're not surprised with union with Christ's language when we understand that in the Old Testament, God is the God of people. And so then you come to the New Testament, and where do you get this language? Well, it's everywhere. <laughs> so if you were to sit down right now and just flick randomly to somewhere in Paul's letters or anywhere in the New Testament, there's a good chance that you're going to land in union with Christ's language. And so it's anywhere where you'll have the language of in him or in the Lord or in Christ. And here's the surprising thing. That comes up over 164 times in Paul's letters alone. And so this isn't some sort of nuanced, weird thing that we're talking about that you will only find in, at the end of the, the letter of James or something. No, this is everywhere in the New Testament. And then you've got uh, the, the language that Paul uses in our relationship with Jesus as well. And so Paul uses the language of marriage. Uh, that is, Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. You've got the vine and branch language in John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. We have the head body language and the temple and cornerstone language. And so let me pick up on one of them, particularly the language of marriage, Christ being the husband and the church being the bride. This is a, an image of union with Christ. And so Martin Luther is really helpful with this. Have a listen to this quote from Luther. It's from The Freedom of a Christian. And he says this, he says, who then can appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here then is this rich and divine bridegroom Christ, and he marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. This means her sins cannot now destroy her, since they're laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Such beautiful language from Martin Luther, isn't it? You're picturing yourself as this harlot, this prostitute that has all of your sins. And maybe you picture the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine bridegroom. And maybe in our sin, we would imagine Christ as this cruel tyrant, ready to stamp us out and to snuff out the smoking candle. But instead, he comes tenderly and he receives all of her weakness. It's like that, that a marriage covenant, isn't it? Where you say, all that is yours is mine and all that is mine is yours. Christ takes all of our sin, all of our junk, all of our weakness, and he nails it to that tree. And then he gives us all of his loveliness, all of his righteousness, all of his glory, so that we might be with him forever. And I think so many Christians out there, their experience is one of seeing Jesus separated from them or standing far off in the distance, pointing at them, examining them, seeing where their failures are and calling them out and saying, you're not good enough. You need to try harder. Or look at that mess you made. That's terrible. I'm disgusted with you. And so we picture a Jesus who is divided from his people, standing in a distance and just staring and glaring at us. But what we're trying to advocate for is the biblical idea that Christ does not stand distant from his people and aloof. He doesn't point aggressively, judgmentally at us. He comes near by his spirit and ties himself together with the church, with you. And if you are a believer, 
you're wrapped together in Christ so that all of his benefits are now yours and all that is yours is now his. So in Christ, you have freedom, rest, peace, joy, salvation, justification. Everything of his is now given to you as a free gift. You can't earn it. It's provided by the perfect bridegroom. You think about a person coming into a marriage with endless amounts of debt, this maybe a bride or, or a husband, and, and they have all this debt in the world just piling on top of them. Well, when they get married, that debt becomes the other person's debt as well. Now, if the person they're marrying has an infinite amount of wealth, well, all of a sudden that debt is swallowed up. And here's what we see in Christ. We have the debt of our sins crushing us and bearing over us, and yet we come to the one who has the infinite amount of wealth, of grace, of holiness, and he swallows up our debt. Yeah, and Christ isn't stingy with giving us all of his grace, is he? You know, it's not like he sort of holds some of it back. No, he loves to give grace. He loves to lavish us with his goodness. So I love that language in Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed is the God and Father who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, God loves, he's a God who delights to bless. And I think you see that as you look at the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. You know, as you see Jesus dine with the untouchables and the misfits and the nobodies and the people that the world overlooks, the people that the Pharisees pointed at and overlooked, how does Jesus come to these people? What is this divine bridegroom like? Where he comes and says, I love you. <laughs> I've come to die for you. And we, and we see this with the, the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, where there's this woman that comes with all of her baggage. You know, she's, she's a whore. She's that harlot that Luke is talking about. And, and Jesus deals so tenderly with her. And, and it's quite interesting, actually, contrasting that with Nicodemus, a religious leader. Jesus never straight up says to Nicodemus, hey, I'm the Messiah. You know, I'm the one who can give you rivers of living water. But to the woman who comes as a whore with all of her sin, Jesus says, no, 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 come to me. I'm the one who can fulfill you. Mm -hmm. I am the, the river of life. You know, stop, stop filling up those broken systems. <laughs> come to me that can, can give you everything that you need. And then she says, look, I, I know when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell me all the stuff. Straight there and then it's like, yep, I'm the Messiah. I'm him. Come to me. And she runs off and tells everyone about it. And so the Jesus that we meet in the Bible, this bridegroom, is a bridegroom of deep tenderness to sinners and love towards the loveless. One of the things on that passage I actually remember hearing from Bob Letham at Union was the way Jesus answers her expectations of the Messiah. And he says to her, well, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And he would almost take the position that this is being found in the spirit and in the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And so almost the way he answers her can be concluded to be a union passage of the only way we can ever truly worship God is to be tied together with him. Right. Yeah, and so, so some of the ways that people or theologians would talk about union with Christ is the idea of us in Christ and then Christ in us. And I know so, some theologians would use the language of 
there's a covenantal and an organic relationship or union that we have with Christ. Uh, I, I'm quite happy to go with that. I know, Brian, you wouldn't use that language, but we're getting at the same thing, that Christ is both our justification and our sanctification. And these two categories cannot be merged or squashed together. They are distinct. And that's really important to keep them distinct. Otherwise, what we can end up doing is making our justification based on our sanctification. And we really, really want to avoid that. But but what we're saying is us in Christ means that Jesus is the representative head of the new human race. And so Jesus is the new Adam. So think about the, the relationship that we had with Adam. I, I like to think of it sort of like we were hooked onto Adam's belt. And in the gospel, we're then unclipped from that belt and clipped onto Christ's belt. In Adam, we receive sin and judgment and condemnation because Adam failed to obey the terms of the covenant. And then Christ comes, and he is the second Adam who meets the demands of the covenant. He pays for our sin on that cross. And when we're united to him by faith, we receive all of the the goodies of salvation. We receive justification. That means to be declared right before God. We receive sanctification. That means to be set apart in holiness. And we receive glorification. That means to be fully made perfect with God forever in the new creation. Now, so, so that's us in Christ. That's what I would call the, a, co- a covenantal understanding of our union with Christ. And then the organic, all, all, all we mean by that is the, the idea that Christ is changing us. And so we would use the language of an infused righteousness. Now, don't panic. We're not going all Roman Catholic on you. So the, the Roman Catholics would teach an infused righteousness as their understanding of justification and what it means to be righteous in God's sight. We would That's, that's a big no. <laughs> we wouldn't say that. We're only righteous and justified because of what Christ has done. But there is a sense of an infused righteousness by which Christ is divine and we're the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And Jesus is changing us by his spirit and infusing a righteousness in us to make us more like him. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things is that righteousness won't be fulfilled completely and perfectly until we enter into glory and we receive our new. Uh, glorified bodies. But that righteousness and holiness that we will experience for all eternity is what's ours still by union, even in that day. So we are glorified in Christ, right? All of the aspects of our experience as Christians and our salvation is rooted in the union we have with Jesus. Now, I might not use the same language that Daniel would use, but I think we can agree on the conclusions we make. We cannot collapse justification and sanctification into one another, or we end up in some very dangerous waters. We would say that you are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by by his grace alone, and that that has nothing to do with your growth as a Christian. But we also would agree that if you are united to Jesus Christ for justification, then you cannot just have parts of Jesus. You are tied together with the one who justifies, but you are also tied together with the one who sanctifies. You receive the whole Christ. Yeah, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that relationship between union with Christ and justification. So there's a bit of a debate that goes on within reform circles on that. Brian, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, there, there would be some who would consider the justification to be by faith alone, which we would agree on. But they would say that this has to precede the union that we have with Christ. It's something that happens distinctively or logically prior to union. And then there's those 
of the flavor that Daniel and I would find ourselves in, who would say that justification is a gift, a benefit of our union with Christ. Now, some great theologians out there who we very much respect and we read their books, but they would hold to the first position. And for some variety of reasons, Daniel and I would just say, we're not quite convinced by that. Yeah, and, and that's because you cannot receive these things unless you're in Christ. And so if you think about justification in terms of a place, there's only one place to be justified, and that is in the justified one. And so there's, there's actually a passage in, I think it's 1 Timothy 3.16, where, and I love this, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery of godliness, and you sort of imagine him to talk about what we need to do and our obedience. But he says, great, is the mis- great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. So he starts talking about Jesus, not about what we need to do, which is interesting. But then he says, and he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, that word vindicated is actually the word justified. Jesus was justified in the Spirit. And so he is the only justified righteous one. Outside of him, there cannot be any justification. Which is why we would say it seems to be that logically and theologically speaking, you cannot have justification without having union with Christ. And so this is something Martin Luther says, and I quote, he says, faith justifies because it takes hold of Christ and possesses him, end quote. And so Luther is saying that we're justified because we've taken hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And outside of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be justified. And I think that's the big thing. How can you receive the benefit of Jesus, something that belongs to Jesus himself inherently? It's his. It's no one else's. He is the only one who has the keys to it. How can you take what is his without receiving him? Yeah, and I think that gets into maybe one of the implications. I'll let Brian, I'll let you talk about assurance. That's one of the the implications of union with Christ and how it grounds Christian assurance. But one of the other implications is it stops Jesus becoming a means to another end. And so I think if we, if let, let's say we bypass this idea of union with Christ and we talk about salvation solely in terms of the gifts that Jesus can give us. So Jesus becomes sort of like a cosmic Santa Claus and he passes out parcels to us. And those things are basically just a ticket to heaven. Then that means that Jesus himself isn't the end of the Christian life, but he's just the train ride that gets me to glory and then oh, finally I'll get all the goodies. Whereas what we're saying is union with Christ puts Jesus at the center, uh, the, the beginning, the middle and the end of the Christian life. Uh, he, he is the, the means by which we receive him. <laughs> and so, so we, we receive Jesus by Jesus. We get Jesus. There's nothing better than Jesus. When I get to heaven, it's because Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. Yeah, Does that make sense? You often hear a lot of people out there who, who consider almost a, a worldly version of Christianity that long for the day where they'll just be in a world without pain and suffering. And don't get me wrong, that is a beautiful part of the new heavens and new earth reality. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. All of our trials and our sufferings will be washed away and we'll be in a renewed world where none of that is ever possible again. There's no more evil, no more sin. But what is the key portion of that passage in Revelation 21? Jesus Christ will be there and he will wipe away our tears with his own hand. But and we'll the, see him face to face. We'll see him so, face to yeah. face. The bride and the bridegroom will be unified physically together for all eternity. 
And that's the good news of that future day. It's not that I'll receive a life without pain and pleasure. That, that is a benefit and that's something we long for. But the ultimate gift is the one who we've waited all these years to see face to face, the one who gave himself up for his bride. Yeah, it's what the theologians, um, they describe it as the beatific vision, don't they? The vision that makes happy, the day that when we see Jesus with, unglorif- with glorified eyes, and by that, they don't just mean the, the physical eyes that we have, but the eye of the soul, mm. where we will, where, and I can't describe it to you because I'm not there. You know, one day, maybe even then we won't be able to fully describe it, but it will be like a, a rushing wind to the soul. It will be satisfaction on an infinite level. And every enjoyment that we have had down here will be nothing but a trinket or a, a drop in the bucket compared to the glory of seeing Christ. Mm. And maybe one of the areas where, I think this has implications, this idea of Jesus being a means to another end is in evangelism. So I think I'm guilty of this, and I have been guilty of this in the past. Often when I evangelize on the street, I used to do this in, in Australia. I'd stand on the street of Brisbane and hand out tracts. And the way that I'd evangelize would be, look, you need Jesus in your life in order to get you to heaven. And so you can see what I've done. I've made Jesus just that train ride for something better than him mm. to heaven. Rather than saying, look, what you need is Christ. <laughs> You're dead in your sin. You're in Adam. And you need, you need a bridegroom who's going to take all of your sin and give you all of himself. That's what people need. Amen. Um, and of course, a part of that is heaven. It's a huge part of it. You know, I've, I, there's nothing wrong necessarily of, of trying to get people to heaven. That, that's right. But we want people to have Christ himself. Absolutely. And I think what we do is, when, Daniel and I, when we look at the climate of the church and we see people in it, and for a lot of them, they're struggling with the concepts of grace. They're struggling with this idea that they're okay with God. They, they feel pain of an angry God crushing them under the law. They feel the weight of the words of the preacher that they, that they kind of fall under every single week as they self-condemn themselves. And they're not sure where to turn. And they wonder, well, what does union have to say to that? How, how can I have any assurance? What, what comfort can this provide for me? And I think really helpfully, Meredith Klein, who was a biblical theologian a few years ago, he's, he's gone and off to be with the Lord now. He's died and, and gone into um, his spiritual place. But he, he would talk about union in a way that kind of transcends time and space. See, by faith alone in the gospel, we are merged together with Christ and united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that union, transcending time and space, is really important. When Christ was in the wilderness, resisting every one of Satan's temptations perfectly, you were there with him. When he showed perfect love and compassion throughout his life, you were there. When he looked at women and treated them as sisters and daughters, maintaining perfect purity and love, so did you. When he obeyed the Father's will and went to the cross, there you were. In his life you lived, in his death you died, and in his resurrection you find new life. But it also works the other way around. Through our union with Christ, he takes on your guilt and your shame and is crucified for it on the cross. So every single failure of your life has been paid for over 2,000 years ago. The work is finished. Everything that Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection is yours by faith alone, in which the Holy Spirit ties you together with him. 
that transcends time and space. There's not a single area of your life that you can point to that I won't also point you back to Christ. He has finished the work. He is perfect. You are not. You are tied together with him. That's right. And that's the assurance, isn't it, of the Christian? Yeah, let me just go back to something that we were saying before, because I think this is another consequence of union with Christ, and that is in in how we preach. So I, I've had it in the past where, not not actually in, in this church, but in, in previous churches where I've preached a passage, and the entire application has been, look at Christ. Go away looking at him. Isn't he amazing? Now go. Yeah, leave this building. Go looking at him. And, and I have had, had one or two in the past say things like, well, where was the application in the sermon? And it's a good, it's a fact, I get what people are saying. And I think what people mean by that is, where were the five steps? Where were the three things to do? Where, where, where was the pray more or read the Bible more or evangelize more in the sermon? Where was the application? And my answer to that is always, I, I gave you the best application that I can give you. <laughs> and that is Christ himself. That is receiving Christ. And so I think this has so many implications, doesn't it? For the Christian life, for how we evangelize, for how we preach. If we see that the Christian life is our union, our mystical union with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, then that will drive how we preach, how we evangelize, how we pray, how we speak with one another. And I think what's quite interesting, though, is, is, is Daniel and I would agree on the fact that you will come across passages that talk about what is expected of us as Christians, uh, especially in the second parts of certain New Testament letters, for instance, where we move into the implications of the gospel, right? The imperatives, the commands of here's what the Christian life is now going to look like. But that is never in a, in a position where we lose sight of the gospel and the declarations of a justification by faith or a union with Christ by faith alone, by the tying together by the Spirit. And so what we would say is, because of this priority of union in our preaching, even when we talk about those works-based passages, we never lose sight of the rest that Christ brings by union. And so I think it's Brian Chapel who talks about if the, the preacher preaches a sermon and the people walk away with their eyes more on themselves than on Jesus, that preacher has failed. And I think that's our conviction. We want to proclaim clearly the gift of salvation that comes by union with Christ, by his spirit. And in doing that, we will drive people and propel them outward to do love and good works, but never in isolation. And we always want their minds to be set and focused on that rest that he brings. So I, th I think we've already touched on this a little bit, but it'd be good for us to go a little bit deeper. And that is union with Christ spans from eternity past into eternity future. And so God elects us in Christ. Uh, Jesus assumes our humanity and takes our humanity to himself. Uh, we are then savingly united to Christ in time and space by faith. And then that union is consummated one day in glory. Do you want to get the ball rolling, Brian, with God elects us in Christ? How can that be? Right. So how is it that God elects us in Christ, right? This is a, a union passage. This is, it predates the, the time when I was even born. There's no way I could have believed in Jesus. We're saying that union happens by faith alone in the gospel and the Holy Spirit ties us together through that faith experience and we're wrapped together with Christ. So how on earth can Jesus choose us in him 
as let's see, let's read it right from the, the Bible. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, how does that work? I'm not alive. No one's alive. The world doesn't even exist yet. And yet we're chosen by union. This is a union that transcends time and space. We just spoke of that briefly. And, and so what's happening here is the God who exists outside of time and space. Time is, is a creation of God. It comes into existence when he declares it. And yet here you have the one who has eternally existed. And in that eternity, he has chosen you before time was, before the world was, you've always been his. There has never been a starting point. He has chosen you forever in union. Yeah, it's great. And that's why people, I've heard a theologian once, I think it might have been the hardest Voss, say that um, God ne never began loving you. Or some, something along those I lines. That. I love that. Because he, he always has. He was in eternity past, into mm. eternity future. Yeah. So, so then you've got Jesus assuming our humanity. And so I'll talk about the incarnation for a moment. What is the incarnation? It is that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came into the far country. And, and he didn't do it as a tourist. So Jesus didn't come as a tourist to earth. No, he, he became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's John 1 verse 14. And that means that Jesus took the human nature to himself. And therefore, he redeemed and saved humanity, what it means to be human. And I think if you think about, so I, I, my father-in-law, he used to run a framing business and every once in a while he would mess up a little bit and possibly make a stain on an art piece of artwork or something went wrong and there, there was a little bit of damage to artwork, this artwork. So he would call somebody who was in the business of restoring art and they would come and fix it and restore it to its original state. Well, you got to think we are images of God created in his image to show his glory to the world. We are paintings and pi pictures, portraits of God. And yet that portrait was stained and had become corrupt. And so there was one who had to come to restore it. But the one who came to restore it did it in himself. Who is God, which is why I think you sometimes get some of that language in the early church, which we'd be uncomfortable with. And yet there's something to it. And so uh, Athanasius famously said that the Son of God became man so that men might become God, right? And we would say, well, and I don't think Athanasius would say there that we're becoming, we're becoming part of the divine nature itself. So Athanasius wouldn't be saying that. Now, there is a sense in, in 2 Peter 1, I think it's verse 4, where we, we partake of the divine nature. I think he would go there. There is a trajectory there that I think is perhaps helpful. And that is God has united humanity to himself in the incarnation. And so while we don't become the divine nature, as though we're collapsed into God's essence, there is a oneness between God and man now because of the incarnation, which wasn't true in Adam. But something new has taken place. So you almost have this picture of the God revealed in Scripture says he will not give his glory to another. And yet you have the picture of the saints receiving the glory of God in the new heavens and new earth. And we think, well, how can that be possible where we don't cause the scriptures to contradict itself? Well, it's only possible through union, where we don't have it isolated from God, where he gives it to us. But we have it by being wrapped up into the God of eternity. 
Yeah, that's great. And so why, why does this matter? Well, without the incarnation, the cross becomes abstract and meaningless. Because how can Jesus be our savior if he doesn't share in our flesh and blood? And Jesus has to become a man in order to redeem us at the cross. And so, which is why the, the Eastern Orthodox Church will often focus on incarnation theology in their soteriology, whereas in the Western Church, we focus more on the cross and the resurrection. That seems a false dichotomy, <laughs> isn't there? Um, and the, the extremes on either end are both wrong because they're both true. Mm. Um, if, if Jesus doesn't die on the cross and rise again, then how can you be saved? How can your sins be punished? How, how can there be any justification? But if the one who dies isn't the God-man, how can you possibly be justified? Because Jesus is the justified one. And who on earth could raise up that humanity back to its rightful place if it were not God? That's right. Yeah. And so Gregory of Nazianzus has one of those, those famous quotes where he says, that which Jesus did not assume, he did not save. In other words, Jesus needed to become all that we are because all that we are needed saving. If Jesus only saves my my soul, then I won't have a new body. I can't actually be saved because I am body and soul. I need a human that is both body and soul. If Jesus didn't come and take on a human will, then my human will is unredeemed. Mm. Jesus needs to become all that I am because all that I am needs to be saved. Absolutely. The entirety of our human nature, both body and soul, has to be assumed by Jesus. If not, we have no hope. And the question then becomes, well, why couldn't Jesus have just become incarnate been born as a, as a baby, and then been sacrificed as a baby for the world. Why wouldn't that have passed? He's still God and man, so how come that doesn't work? Well, then the answer comes in the fact that Jesus didn't only just have to become a man, he had to elevate man back to its rightful place, to true humanity. Humanity had become corrupt and had descended by sin into darkness, and Jesus in himself had to raise it back up by fulfilling all righteousness in himself. And by doing this, he had become perfect sacrifice. Without his work throughout his entirety, the entirety of his life, he would not have been this. And so this is where we find hope in the God-man who comes into our world, takes himself under the law and fulfills it perfectly, and then goes to the cross. Yep. And so in the incarnation, God doesn't stand back with this nuclear suit on. <laughs> so he's standing at a distance from us. He enters all that we are in order to redeem and save us from our sins. Amen. Yeah. And, and so then, and then thirdly, we, we're, we're savingly united to Christ. So, so there, there are some theologians, I think it's Karl Barth, I could have this wrong, they would teach that we're, we're elect, we're justified in the past via election in Christ. And so when we become saved, we only recognize that we already are saved. Now, we would say that that's wrong. Something really does change and something really does happen when we put our faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So actually going back on something we said earlier, how can you have what belongs to Christ if you don't have Christ himself? And we would use that same argument to defend the position against Karl Barth. We, we would say, look, you don't have Jesus in that state. Yes, it was a, a declaration. It was an election. You were chosen in Christ. But that election and that choosing by union is rooted in the reality of a deep and profound union in history. Yeah. And so God has decreed the means as well, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. And the means that he uses to attach us to Christ is via faith, by the Spirit. And so you cannot be united to Christ outside of faith and outside of the Spirit. 
Because I think that's that would be my position against that view is you still don't have Christ. How exactly. Can you, how yeah. can you have his gifts if you don't have Christ? Yes. Yeah, and so so what is faith? Well, faith, as um as Luther would say, is that the vehicle that lays a hold of Christ, that receives Christ. It's it's a bit like the gospel invitation. We spoke about it in the first episode, Walther saying it's a it's a come and eat. And so faith is coming and eating. It's coming and receiving Christ and and, and all that he is. What about the union that's consummated in glory? I think the beautiful picture of union here is the restored image of God, right? So you have this this idea in the very beginning where God creates this world and he creates humanity in his own image. And they're beautiful portraits of himself who are meant to be fruitful and multiply and fill the world so that the entire creation would be covered with images of himself declaring his glory and revealing his glory for all the world to see and experience. And yet that image becomes corrupted and broken. But God doesn't give up on his plan and he pursues us in Christ and elevates the image back to its rightful place and beyond its place through the perfect work of the God-man. And so that God-man then dies for the sins of his people and is risen from the dead in victory. And all who believe are now tied into that perfected image of God and their image is redeemed. And we don't know that completely in the here and now. We, we still have images that seem fractured. There's still corruption there. There's still sin. What we are longing for the day where we will share that same perfected image of Christ in full and the world will once again be covered with perfect images of God reflecting his glory forever but it is only made possible through union. Right. Uh, so maybe a closing gambit on this idea of union theology and how it maybe ties to other areas of theology, especially the Lord's Supper or sacramentology, that kind of idea. Yeah, so during the Reformation, you have a great debate, don't you, between the Lutherans and the Zwinglians and the, the Roman Catholic Church and then Calvin's view as well about how is it possible that the Lord Jesus Christ can feed us by himself. And so the Roman Catholic Church would say that, well, that they, they hold to the position of transubstantiation. Uh, that is that the, the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. And so we're able to receive Christ that way. The, the Zwinglian view, I'll, I'll leave that out because it's not really worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Most of <laughs> people will agree. Uh, I'm so sorry if I've offended you. Um, the, the Lutheran position is that Jesus is in with and under the Lord's Supper, whereas Calvin would say, we, we don't need to do any of that. We don't need to do any of that complicated theological work. And, and Calvin has already set the stage for his understanding of the Lord's Supper by his union with Christ's theology. And that is already, I am taken up. So it's not that Christ comes down to me. I am lifted up to him by the Spirit in glory to receive from the whole Christ. And so when I take the Lord's Supper, it's not like Jesus needs to come down and be with, in, or under this thing. No, I am taken up by the Spirit to feed on Christ by faith. And so John Calvin's already done all of his hard work on the Lord's Supper by working out this union with Christ's theology. And building on the beautiful truth that Calvin unpacks in his sacramentology, the kind of his theology around the sacraments of baptism and communion. If you just think about the way we pray and how we approach the Father, we pray to the Father by the Spirit in Christ, right? United to Christ. And so all these elements come into play when we approach God in prayer. 
we are being drawn up into the heavenly places and stepping into the throne room of God. In fact, we are seated on the throne with Christ, seated in the heavenly places with him. This is Paul's language, the, the church in Corinth. And so when we pray, we're on the throne with Jesus. And we have the Father's ear who bends in low towards us as we sit beside him. The Father hears our prayers because we are there with Christ. So as we wrap up this episode on union with Christ, what we're trying to get at and what we want you to realize is that this is who you are. This is your identity. Your sin doesn't define you. Your sin doesn't have the last words. Your failings don't have the last word. Who are you? You are one who is united to Christ, your bridegroom. who loves you and took all of your sin and paid for it on the cross and gives you all of his obedience, all of his goodness, all of his beauty, all of his righteousness, and you are safe in him. And so union with Christ then is the gospel. Amen. It is the good news. Yeah. And um, with that, we'll, we'll wrap up the episode. And uh, thanks again for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you.